This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. And this is the power of that inspiration. What is it that comes down or comes up or comes across, comes through into that person that makes them change their life entirely? How do we invite that? Can we even invite that? Can we ask for that? America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, whose solemn mission it is to reveal for you how the world really works. And nowhere better to do that than right here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen podcast on The Blaze, where today we get ready to dive right into a few topics. I think we're going to start off talking about uh, magic a little bit, and, uh, and then we need to look at just why it is that when we look back at trying to establish when it was that things fell apart, and uh, obviously, you can't pinpoint it to an hour or a day or a month or even a specific year, but a period. And I think that uh, saying the early 60s when was when values changed in America, where what it meant to be an American changed. Uh, was it the birth control pill coming out in 62, 63? Or perhaps it was the incredibly significant Immigration Reform Act of 1965, uh, pushed by uh, people like Senator uh, Ted Kennedy and uh, a number of other people who had a vested interest in changing the face of America. Uh, but that period seems to be the period where it is, it, it's easiest to pinpoint as the, the point at which things began dramatically changing in America. Why then? What was different then? And I want to present that to you. And uh, and then uh, we should probably also talk just a little bit about uh, the nature of cities, if we can get all of that into today's show, into this podcast. So uh, let's set off right away on the, the question of magic. Here's, here's the question. Uh, number one, you've noticed, I'm sure, if you are in any way uh, attracted to the ent entertainment form of uh, the illusionist, of the magician, uh, if by chance you saw the movie with Michael Caine called The Prestige, and there have been a number of, of movies uh, in, in recent years about magicians, uh, so there, there is obviously some general interest about it, and uh, you may or you may not have it. But regardless, here is one question, and that is, I bet you cannot think of a female magician. It's very hard to do so. Now, there may be an exception somewhere. I'm not aware of it, I must tell you, and I've, I've searched. There may be one somewhere, but by and large, if you think of all the magicians, whether it's the magician that comes and entertains the five-year-old, five-years-olds at your kid's birthday party, or whether it is the uh, magicians that entertain in Las Vegas and uh, who fill theaters around the world and who have special TV shows, there isn't a one of them. That's a woman. Now, of course, most of them have beautiful female assistants, 
who hold the hat while the magician makes the rabbit pop out of it or whatever. But what's the reason for that? Is it that there is a, a magically invisible glass ceiling that makes it impossible because of sexual prejudice? It makes it simply impossible for women to graduate from assistant to the main act. Is that what it is? Do you think that's likely? Or maybe it's that uh, audiences are so prejudiced against women that they simply will not buy tickets to attend a magic show by a woman. So what is it? Well, it's actually a lot simpler than that. It's none of those explanations and uh, none of the other false explanations to which secular fundamentalism is drawn and which liberalism finds so attractive. Uh, there is always an assault. There is always an attack. There's hatred. There's prejudice. There is hostility. No, actually, there's none of those things. And it's really very simple indeed. Uh, the explanation is that uh, all magicians, and it's a craft, right? you don't decide on Wednesday to become a magician and then do shows on Friday. It doesn't work like that. Uh, it takes literally years of skill. Now, the beginning of it all, when you start off learning to do magic, what it depends upon is sleight of hand. That's the very first thing you do, making things vanish, moving things behind your fingers, making them reappear, and doing all of that with dexterity and finesse so that uh, it becomes easy to, to misdirect the audience and prevent them from seeing what it is you're really doing. But whatever it is you're really doing is happening in hands. If, um, if, if you are going to create the illusion of a coin leaping up off your palm and being caught by your other hand six inches above your first palm, that requires the convulsive jerk of a muscle in the palm and uh, forcing that, that quarter or whatever coin it is to, to leap up into the air. Well, I'm sure you've caught on by now, and that is one of the differences between men and women is hand size. There are men with uh, very, very tiny hands. There are also men with uh, very large hands. And the variation from the mean in men is very high. Uh, there are, are, they truly are very men with small, small hands, but there are also men with large hands. Whereas women all have roughly the same size hand. They don't vary that much, and their hands are far smaller than the average size of men's hands and way smaller than the size of men with big hands. And large hands are a massive advantage if you're going to be doing magic. Um, it's, it's not only the, the musculature in the hand, but it's also there's more space to hide things. I mean, the usual props in magic are a standard size, you know. They don't make small quarters for women and big quarters for men. A quarter is a quarter. And so it is with, with everything else. If it's going to be a, a, a handkerchief you're going to make vanish or whatever it is, these things have a certain physical size. And the larger your hand, the more advantage you have in concealing them and re, uh, making them reappear and vanishing them. It's, it's, it's great. Now, 
the, uh, the 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 magic trick. If uh, if if you if you happen to see the the movie The Prestige, and even if not, there's a lot of talk about this and in, in the in the world of magic. And I should mention that uh, I am a big enthusiast of marriage of of that also of magic. And the, um, the, the, the truth is, however, that my enthusiasm for magic greatly exceeds my skill. And uh, so it was that I'm always very grateful to my family members uh, for tolerantly allowing me to attempt my latest illusion. I have a whole shelf of magic books. And uh, when my children were a little bit smaller than they are now, um, I used to try and make it a part of the uh, Shabbat dinner table. We we celebrate the Sabbath with a family meal every Friday night and then again at lunchtime on Saturday. And uh, I used to plan and prepare magic tricks that I would just start doing during the course of the meal. And um, you know, I would perhaps just turn to the child sitting next to me, get their attention and, and say, now, you know, look at this salt cellar. We had a glass cellar filled with salt. And uh, and at that point, everyone else is looking to see what's going on, and I would do my best to make the salt uh, vanish, showing them very quickly an empty uh, salt cellar. And, um, and, and I'd pass it around, and everyone would be pretty amazed because everyone saw a few minutes ago it had salt, but the salt's totally vanished. And uh, then, uh, because my hands are reasonably large, I was able to make that salt cellar vanish and get replaced by another salt cellar looking exactly the same, but again, with enough misdirection, enough smooth patter, and enough uh, talking and explanation, uh, I made it appear as if I had refilled the salt cellar, got all the salt back into the salt cellar, and on the surface of it, it wasn't immediately apparent that uh, I'd switched salt cellars, and so on and so forth, and I'd do different uh, different uh, tricks of this kind. Now, uh, what I lacked in skill, uh, I tried to make up for in the presentation, the setup, and and that becomes very important. I learned a great deal about that, and um, and the, uh, the 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 classic notion of the three parts of a magic trick um, are what are called the the uh, pledge, the turn, and the prestige. What is the, the pledge? The pledge is when I show my children and, and, and uh, whoever else is at the table, look, you know, here is a salt cellar filled with salt. Now, ordinarily, we uh, shake it and the salt comes out of these little holes in the top, and it takes a long time to come out, doesn't it? And by this time, it's becoming apparent to some of the older children, I'm going to make that salt come out mighty quickly, but how am I going to do it? It's starting to look interesting. And then, all of a sudden, yikes, I have it, does it, and uh, a, a wave of my arm, and I, I have vague talk of magic dust, and the next thing is, I'm showing them an empty salt cellar, and that's called the turn, where you turn around the presumption. The presumption was the salt is in a salt cellar, it doesn't get out very quickly, and now, all of a sudden, with just the wave of my hand, it's all gone and vanished to where, who knows, who knows? And then that is basically the end of the magic trick. But everybody waits expectantly because somehow or another people know that that's not the end. I mean, making things vanish is all very well, and it's not even that difficult. But how about making them come back again? Now, that is a lot harder. 
And that part of the magic trick is called the prestige. You make it come back. Um, Why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you this because there is a reason that I spent and continue to spend, uh, you know, a fair amount of time trying to master a trick. I also watch the masters do tricks. Um, I, I love watching either live, which I don't have an opportunity to do very often, but uh, on uh, television or in uh, videos, I love watching superb magicians do their thing. Not just because I get a kick out of it, but because I'm watching. I'm watching as carefully as I can, and I know exactly where to watch, as you do too. And that is precisely not where the magician is directing you to watch whether it's the movement of his other hand or his facial expressions or where he's looking. But the art of misdirection is is central uh, to the whole thing. Love watching it, and I truly applaud a smooth performance when the magician successfully pulls off the pledge, the turn, and then, yes, the prestige, the third part, uh, where he shocks you with something that outdoes the middle part. And uh, why is this? Is, is this just... Uh, um, a form of entertainment that I enjoy? No, not at all. It is because my work is as a teacher. In fact, rabbi simply means teacher. And so when I say everybody needs a rabbi, that's not merely a self-serving strategy. That is also very true. It means that regardless of your faith, we can all use a teacher And in this particular case, revealing how the world really works is something that a teacher with uh, equal access to the physical as well as the spiritual uh, is rather useful to have. And since I I teach, I lecture, I give speeches, I I talk, um, obviously there is a right way and a wrong way to present information. And in no field of human endeavor, if I can put it that way, have I found more to learn than in the area of the magic trick. Because one can present a piece of information and have it fall flat. But one can also present a piece of information with the correct builder, with the correct presentation, turning it into a turn and a prestige so as that there really is what I call the aha moment. The aha moment when the audience says to themselves, wow, ah, that's interesting. Never thought of that before. Didn't see that. Okay. Well, why do I explain all of that? Uh, well, I'll tell you in just a moment. Coming back. Don't go away. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. If on the one hand he's going to build a moat on the border, fill it with alligators, and then on the other side, if you make it past the alligators, then we're going to hit you with an even more dangerous animal, and that's a rhinoceros. If you somehow make it past the rhinoceros, then the United States Marine Corps is there, and they're going to shoot you with guns as you run across... Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello and welcome back as we continue the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show on the Blaze on this podcast episode. 
And uh, we started off talking about magic tricks and uh, just how much goes into a trick. Um, how it is that if a magic trick were done by an unskilled amateur magician uh, with no build-up, with no misdirection, uh, with, uh, with, with no padder, with, with no finesse, um, it would probably fall flat. It's because the magic trick is like a beautiful painting that is set off by an, a, a, a perfectly designed frame that surrounds it. Um, it is the frame that focuses the eye and the attention on the work of the artist. And so it is the, the framework that highlights the magical illusion uh, is as much a part of it as the, as the frame is of a painting in an art gallery. And uh, I explain that in the context of, of giving a, a lecture or a speech or a, a teaching, whether you are a parent, whether you are a teacher, uh, whether you have to give a speech at work or at a uh, social or civic organization of which you're a part, whenever you've got to give a speech, I urge you to think carefully and seriously about the lesson of the magician, that how you present it is every bit as important as what you present. I will tell you this, that uh, when I give a speech, uh, there is a good deal of preparation that goes into it. A 20-minute speech can easily take four to six hours of preparation, easy. Now, how is that divided up? <laughs> I'm sort of letting you into my workshop here and giving you a glimpse into the behind the scenes. Um, in, in general, about um, 50 to 60 percent of the time, maybe a little over 60 percent, not much, a little over maybe 65 percent, goes towards the subject matter, the content, the actual trick, if you like. But uh, the rest of it, 35 to 40 percent of the time, goes to the structure, the presentation, the organization, the frame in which the material is going to repose. Right? And uh, you see this as well. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I heard this great joke, and you say, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm terrible telling jokes. You know, you, well, then what did you tell me about it in the first place for? But, okay, fine. Uh, but people do that. They, they laughed uproariously. They heard this terrific joke, and they want to retell it, and then they all of a sudden realize they're going to make a mess of it. Why? Because being a comedian is not easy. You can't just get up. Very, very few people are born with that innate skill. Um, it's, it's usually something that's cultivated over time and nurtured through experience and in exactly the same way. Uh, we realize that in, in teaching and presenting something, uh, there is a way to do it in exactly the same way as there's a specific manner in which you tell a joke and it works well. And you can watch some of the, the truly skilled and accomplished comedians and you see how very hard they work. Now, of course, the trick is to make it look easy and relaxed. Just the way a magician does seems to be effortless, but an awful lot of sweat and tears went into making that happen. And the same thing is true for when you give a class, a lecture, a speech, whatever it is. And it's, it's always worthwhile paying a little attention to that. I had a very interesting question um, come to me the other day. Um, somebody said to me, said, you know, Rabbi, I... Um, I've been following your uh, audio teachings on the book of Genesis. I have a series of audio CDs called Genesis Journeys. And uh, 
They include um, the gathering storm, decoding the secrets of Noah and the flood, uh, the Tower of Power, decoding the secrets of Babel. Uh, yeah, the story of the Tower of Babel is, uh, is, is really far more than the account of some long-forgotten primitive people and building a tower which is altogether irrelevant to modern times. No, um, it's not an accident that the original flag that flew over the European Union meeting buildings, the Parliament buildings in Strasbourg, France, um, contained on the on the flag a depiction of the Tower of Babel as painted by the Flemish painter Peter Bruegel the Elder, famous painting of the Tower of Babel. And... Uh, and no, it's very, very relevant to today's headlines. Anyway, that's one of the audio CDs. Another one is called A Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, another one is called Madam, I'm Adam, uh, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, and so on and so forth. So I do a lot of teaching on the book of Genesis. So uh, this person said to me, this is very interesting, he said, Rabbi, uh, I, I love your teaching. I'm, I'm Christian, but uh, I've never studied the Bible the way you do it, and I, I've learned so much from the Hebrew analysis of the Lord's language and uh, verses that I thought I understood. You turned upside down completely, and I see exactly where you get the information of how it works. He said, I'm just really excited about it, but I want to tell you something. I go to a church, and he told me the church he goes to. It was not a church I knew, and he said... Um, I have a lot of friends at church, and you know, we do Bible study, and we have Bible study twice a week. He said, I share things. I tell them things that uh, I learned from you, and I've got to tell you, it doesn't go down smoothly. It doesn't work well, and, um, and it's like there's not that much interest, and people you know, wrinkle their brows and say, oh, it doesn't make too much sense. You know? He said, I don't get it, Rabbi. What's going on? And I gave two possible explanations. I said, number one, one possible explanation, which, by the way, I don't think is likely, but I'm, I'm going to include it for completion's sake, and that is that uh, there used to be a, a branch or a way of thinking, a theology in Christianity that was called replacement theology. And in this, what happened is they said, look, um, the, uh, the Jews were obviously the people with whom the covenant was established was through Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then finally um, on uh, um, Mount Sinai we had the uh, revelation of God and the Ten Commandments to Moses. But, however, at a certain point, uh, Jews were replaced in, in God's affections, as it were. And uh, you'll pardon me if I don't have the theology exactly right. I'm not a theologian. Do you know what I am? Well, uh, I am a, uh, a, a rabbi. I'm a teacher of the Torah. What's the difference between that and a theologian? I'll tell you. A theologian studies what people think about God. I teach what God thinks about people. It's a very big difference. And so... I don't know the, the precise details, but whatever it is, this, uh, this stream of Christianity says, well, uh, the Jews lost the covenant and uh, Christians replaced the Jews and they are the ones carrying it forward. And, 
and among a num among a number of people, this is this is the way it's looked at. Although I I will tell you that um, I am myself. I've only met one uh, Christian leader who thought that way. I'm sure there are others, and we were very friendly. We uh, we had a very friendly relationship, uh, both with him as well as with I, I got to be friendly with his son-in-law. And uh, whilst I'm quite sure that they believe that uh, I am part of a people that lost it and are no longer relevant to the covenant, whatever, you know what? I People who behave beautifully and have beliefs I disagree with, I can live with. The trouble is people who claim to have beliefs that are that care for me and have my interests at heart but behave abominably. And in the last... Uh, in the last podcast, I spoke about the difference between the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution on one hand and the English Revolution of uh, the 1640s to 1650s and the American Revolution in, um, in the 17, middle of, in the mid-17, mid to late 1700s. And uh, I said the very, very big difference was that French and Russian uh, were based on human beings' philosophies. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the noble savage guy you'll remember, and uh, the the Russian one on Karl Marx, and they spoke about socialism, and we care about society, and we we want to be social, and we really we we want to help people, and we want to look after people. But they ended up torturing, torturing, and killing, and uh, and this in France this went on and on all through the Napoleonic era. They they've never recovered from the French Revolution. It was a calamity, a horrible, horrible thing. And of course, the Russian Revolution led to seventy years of Soviet. I mean, well, I don't think I have to tell you what happened, how many Russian people were killed and murdered by Stalin during that period of time. So all very, very bad stuff. So uh, the American Revolution, the English Revolution, these were biblically driven, both of them. And uh, in both of those cases, they resulted in long periods of tranquility and peace and prosperity. People uh, lived well in the aftermath of both those revolutions. They were good things. And so uh, big difference, very big difference. So that's why I'm saying uh, the fact that, that I may have some Christian friends who believe that uh, I'm not going to heaven and that I'm not part of the covenant, but they could not be nicer people and they couldn't be more uh, helpful and considerate and friendly. No problem with that at all. However, it remains a very small group. The overwhelming majority of friends I have in uh, in the Christian community, the ma overwhelming majority of evangelical churches that I know, and I, I speak at maybe 30 to 40 churches a year easy. So I meet a lot of people, and I've become very friendly with a lot of Christians, and I, I really don't know many of it at all who've embraced uh, a replacement theology. Very, very few. Anyway, it, 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 it doesn't matter at all, but I did say to this individual, so you see, it is possible that the people in your church to whom you're speaking, maybe they subscribe profoundly to replacement theology, and therefore, for you to be listening to a rabbi for information on the Bible doesn't make sense because he's got nothing to say about it. He's been replaced. And he thought, oh, that's, that's very interesting. I had never thought of that. And I said, well, it's certainly a possibility. And uh, and I, I understand. I mean, uh, if... Uh, if a Hindu, if a practicing, believing Hindu came and offered to teach me what the book of Genesis is really all about, I, I'll be honest with you, I'd laugh inside, I'd be polite on the outside, but um, I'd say to him, well, I appreciate it, uh, but I'm 
I'm just kind of busy. I've got a busy schedule. And he'll have trouble understanding how I can possibly spurn an offer of such magnanimity and generosity. But I would because I don't think he can tell me anything. And so in exactly the same way, it's certainly possible that uh, there are some Christians who subscribe to a theology that says, you know what, there's there's nothing he can tell you. But uh, the overwhelming majority of Christians that I know subscribe to a theology that says, no, the uh, Christianity is like a branch grafted onto the tree. Uh, The tree of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continues, and now it includes Christianity. In other words, in the same way that I, on, on, on a wonderful day that I'll never forget, I became an American citizen. I became a naturalized American citizen. Um, and yes, Fred, you are correct. I therefore am disqualified from becoming president of the United States of America. Although um, some people would say that since I was born in Africa, that now makes me an African-American and possibly I am able to qualify to be president of the United States. I don't know. But uh, in any event, it's, it's, not, it's not anything that uh, interests me in any way at all. Now, if I could become emperor, that might be a little bit different, or, or I'd settle for dictator as well, because when I'm in charge, there are going to be some pretty big changes around here. I can tell you that for sure. But uh, until that happens, um, I became an American citizen. And what happened at that point? I began speaking of uh, Benjamin Franklin and... Uh, and Jefferson, and Adams. I began speaking of these people as my fathers, the founding fathers of my country. In other words, by becoming part of the covenant of America, as it were, its fathers became my fathers. And in exactly the same way, most of my Christian friends talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being their fathers as well, as as indeed they should. Makes perfect sense. But uh, I did say to, to this person, I said, you know what? Uh, I've given you one possible explanation, but I don't think it's the real one. What is the real reason that nobody seemed at his church to be in the slightest bit interested in him recounting the lessons he'd learned from me on the book of Genesis? Let me tell you as soon as we come back from this quick break. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Remember, President Obama stepped up and said, we are going to change things. We are getting to the bottom of this. That was a year ago. Now, today, I can report to you that the number of veterans seeking health care but ending up on a waiting list of a month or more is now 50% higher than it was a year ago. Did Obama keep his promise of changing the VA? Yes. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Continuing on with the podcast, in the previous segment, I was telling you about uh, an individual who asked me this interesting question, which was, why was it that when he told over to members of his church some of the things he'd learned from studying the book of Genesis with my audio CD programs, Genesis Journeys, uh, that they seemed uh, reluctant and uh, uneasy. They, they, they argued with it. They, they didn't find it compelling at all. They were, they were perturbed by it. And I said that one possibility may be 
that uh, they just have difficulty with the idea that a Jew has anything significant to say about the Bible, about the Old Testament in particular, which uh, didn't didn't seem right to me, but uh, it, it's certainly not out of the question. So, um, and I said in the same way that I would uh, be pretty uninterested in uh, the teachings from Hinduism on the book of Genesis, you know, I would say, you know what, you're an outsider. I mean, I've spent a lot of time studying this. I, I just don't think it's very likely that you've got uh, much truth to convey to me on the topic. Now, if, if I wanted to study the uh, Bhagavad Gita or something like that, it would be completely different. I'd, I'd sit at your feet. But um, perhaps they relate to, to me in exactly the same way. However, I said, in all probability, that's not the real explanation. What is the real explanation? What really is it all about? And I'll tell you, the, the real explanation, I think, is that when I teach you a verse, when I explain something that is going on, uh, whether it's in the story of the Tower of Babel, and I explore, you know, why is it that if, um, if, if, if I wanted to interest you in helping me to uh, build something, I'd say, you know, come on, um, help me build a gazebo in the garden and we're going to be able to uh, get it up on Sunday. And by Sunday night, we'll be able to have a barbecue. That'll be terrific. And then if I've got any interest from you, you might say to me, well, you know, how would we do it? And I'd say, well, we're going to put down some concrete footings, and then we're going to build a framework out of two by fours. And he'll say, where are we going to get them from? And I'll say, well, we'll go over to the hardware store. And, you know, pretty soon we're getting ready to do it. But what happens if I try and attract my friend's interest by saying, hello, um, would you like to go with me to the hardware store to buy some two-by-fours? And he'd wrinkle his nose and he'd say, what, on a perfectly pleasant afternoon? Why would I do that? I've not explained the goal. And so uh, I'd say, so now, why do you think it is that in the biblical account in chapter 11 of Genesis, why is it that the Bible recounts that the very first thing they said was, hey, let's make bricks. And then presumably it was only in the next verse after when people probably said, bricks, what for? They said, oh, we'll build a city with a big tower that'll go up to the sky. Why didn't you start with that? Why don't you first of all say, hey, let's build a big city and get everyone interested. And then they'll say, how are we going to do it? And you say, well, we'll use bricks. Why does it do it back to front? Well, I explain all that, but um, I don't just throw out an answer in 20 seconds there's a whole background to it for instance even now and even in posing the question i've i've used the um uh, the 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 magical um strategy of the pledge i've laid it out for you to to such an extent that and although i should have taken even longer to lay it out but at least I've probably already got your interest. You're probably saying to yourself, I never noticed that. Uh, that's very interesting. And, you know, again, whether or not you're a Bible believer, whether or not you're a Bible enthusiast, it's undeniably a, a book of incredible significance. It's a book that has sculpted Western civilization, and it's a book that uh, has had more copies printed and published than any other book in history. So regardless, uh, if I tell you that there's a bizarre, illogical reversal of verses, uh, you'd probably say, well, that's interesting. I've never noticed that. You might even go and take a look in your Bible.
and uh, I've got your interest. And then if I then proceed and give you the explanation, which you'll probably be relieved to hear that I'm not doing right now, uh, you won't be shocked to discover that the, the answer itself also takes some time. You've got to get some background. I've got to set up the framework so as that the thing can shine in all its glory and, and become a, a mind-boggling, inspiring, insightful, penetrating piece of information. And, um, and so I said to him, so you see, to begin with, uh, you are trying to do and with all you know with with all due respect i said i'm not i'm not trying to toot my horn here at all or anything but this is what i do it's like all i've done in my life there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very valuable skills of which i know zero and i'm totally and utterly incapable but this is my business this is what i do and so you are it's like you're taking a good joke you heard and you've never had experience in how to tell a joke and you tell it over and you're you're surprised that people don't say, oh, tell us another one, tell us another one. They, they, you know, it, it, it didn't work. It, it fell flat. And because to begin with, uh, you're already a little bit uneasy at what kind of response you're going to get with your uh, church friends, the, the likelihood is you probably sort of rushed through it anyways and, uh, and, and you didn't explain it and teach it the way, the way I do it and the way I did it. And uh, as a result, you know, people, and I think that's what it is. I think that is the explanation far more than the, uh, the first suggestion I gave you, which was a possibility, but a remote one, I believe. This, this I think, is, is by far and away the real one. And, uh, and, and it's, it's what I explained and what I thought really made most sense for him in, in the circumstances. And... Um, and that uh, uh, is, is something that I, I, I tell you the story because it has application in almost anything that uh, you do. If you think about it, we, we're constantly doing presentations. You know, if um, let's imagine you, you're, you're going out this evening and you're leaving your children with a babysitter. Maybe it's a babysitter they're not particularly keen on. You've got to present it to them. And there's a way of doing it that increases the likelihood of uh, a calm and, uh, and, and uh, acquiescing reception. And there are ways of doing it that, uh, that could leave your children in tears. Um, if you have to get an idea across to fellow workers at uh, your, your business, uh, again, there is a way, there is the, uh, the uh, pledge, there is the turn, and there is the prestige. There's a, a sequence, there's a way of presenting these things. And again, it doesn't have to be a magic trick, and it doesn't have to be a painting to have a frame. Uh, anything, anything that we communicate to other human beings or to another human being is, in a sense, a piece of art. We're using a remarkable faculty that the good Lord imparted uniquely to us, namely the ability to communicate abstract ideas with our lips and tongues and mouths and uh, that ability to speak is truly an art form and you're doing it every single day and in every single day you are trying to get across an idea maybe maybe you are a sales professional which is what i consider to be one of the most noble areas of business it's a wonderful area of business 
Um, I like it so much because, first of all, anybody can learn how to do it. You can be taught how to be an effective sales professional. Number two, absolutely nothing happens in business until something has been sold and something has been bought. Um, people sometimes say to me, you know, what, what's the definition of a business? And I say it's very simple. Uh, you can either listen to long, rambling explanations from uh, – um, uh, and, and I, I did this, by the way. I once checked into the definition of business from the heads of three prestigious business schools in the country. And all three individuals gave a completely different definition of what a business is. And, and the answer is a business is an entity that has customers. That's all. And you, you only have customers if selling is taking place. And usually selling only takes place if, um, if, if somebody knows how to sell. I mean, I have seen, I'm sure you have too, I've seen ineffective and inept sales professionals talk a customer out of buying because they didn't know when to keep quiet. And so I love the, the profession of selling simply because, number one, it's accessible to everybody. You see, not everybody can be a dentist or not everyone can be a lawyer. Not everybody can handle four years of professional school, but we can all get into sales. And uh, the great thing is, and I did a check here as well on the C-suite of the Fortune 500. I got, I mean, a lot of this information is available online and it's quite fascinating. But uh, I took a look at all the C's for the Fortune 500 companies. CEO, CFO, um, the chief financial officer, chief executive officer, um, and uh, COO, chief operating officer. And uh, I wanted to see how many of them entered with no advanced university degree but through the doorway of sales. And I don't think you'll be shocked when I tell you that it was a very high number, very high number, more than half, more than half the people um, came into the business that they now head or that they now um, are very close to the, the seats of power, they came in through sales. And then because of their effectiveness of that, uh, they moved up and they acquired skills in terms of managing people and projects and so on and so It's a great portal into a career, I must tell you. And, uh, and so, again, I, I mention all of that to explain that a part of being an effective sales professional is once again knowing the the pledge, the turn, and the prestige, knowing how to present the magic trick, how to tell the joke, how to lay it all out, and uh, and how to do that in the most effective way possible. And so it was that um, it so it was that uh, when I explained it to this individual. He, he immediately related to that, and he said, you know, I think you've put your finger on it. He said, you're absolutely right. I am uneasy telling it to them, so I probably hurry it up and, uh, and go a little bit uh, into in, in sort of uh, quickly presenting it rather than laying it out carefully and cautiously. And, um, and, and as a result, I, I rush through it, and, um, and it doesn't work well. So remember then that whether you're uh, speaking to family, whether you're speaking to friends, sometimes even yourself, uh, think about the presentation. The, what you have to communicate, I wouldn't give more than 60% of my time and energy. The remaining 40% I'd give to figuring out exactly how to present it. And uh, you will, I guarantee this, by the way, you will immediately notice the results. You will see how much more persuasive you are and uh, how much more effective you are in getting 
ideas or, uh, or projects or concept uh, or, or, or obtaining agreement from the people you're talking to. I was referring to my uh, Genesis Journey series, and I'm hoping you might want to read more about that. And the way to do that is to go to my website, which I'd invite you to do and love you to do, as a matter of fact. What you do is you go to rabbidaniellappin.com, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, you uh, head over to the store section of the website and uh, look for the Genesis Journeys. Um, CDs and programs, and there you'll have an opportunity to read about each one, whether you're interested specifically in marriage, or the, that would be Madam I Madam, or the gradual deterioration of society, um, the gathering storm, whether you're looking at what's happening in the world today and the struggle between Islam and the West, well, that would be uh, the, um, uh, the uh, clash of destiny, decoding the secrets of Israel and Islam. And uh, it is precisely on the subject of the deterioration of society that I want to come back, if you don't mind. And that is, uh, why is it that it was exactly at the 60s that things seemed to go precipitously downhill? What exactly was happening there? And that's what it is that we're going to take a look at uh, coming back in just a moment. So hold right on. I'm going to be back in a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. In the mainstream media, this deal guarantees, and we are the guarantors. Irony of ironies. You want a gruesome irony? Here's one. We are the guarantors that Iran will have nuclear weapons. They won't necessarily have them tomorrow or in six months or in a year, though they could easily have them. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, of course, you know where you are. You're on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast, and we're talking about uh, why and when did things start falling apart. And uh, it's not just a case of each generation looking back and saying, oh, you know, things aren't the same as when I was a boy. No, it's, it's nothing like that. It's a very real, measurable collapse of the culture. And what I mean by that is that certain basic American values uh, were part of the, the currency of America uh, in the 18th century and in the 19th century and early in the 20th century. And, you know, what, what are those values? Well, that... Uh, the Bible is an important volume, that knowing American history was really important, that I America was an exceptional place, uh, that the founding of America seems to have been touched by the hand of God. It, it, it's, it's a remarkable uh, concurrence of events that, that has not happened many times during history. Um, that uh, interactions were lubricated by courtesy, that kindness is a value, that charity is, is, is a value. Um, and I could carry on and on. You know exactly what they are. These are the things that our uh, parents and grandparents took absolutely for granted. 
um, the you know lots of of children were brought up on the Horatio Alger stories, right? Of, of a young boy making good, hard work, success, that building yourself up and becoming a self-made person. These are really important. Uh, that marriage is important. That raising a family is important. That being faithful to a marriage is important. These were all things that barely had to be said. Now, it didn't mean that there were no violations. It didn't mean that uh, there were no people who stepped out of these paths. But they were outliers. They were outlaws in, in many cases. But the culture as a whole knew what it was about. And even when people, citizens, Americans fell short in one way or another, they knew it. And they weren't proud of it. It was it was an embarrassing thing you know, to uh, to be seen as having no self discipline, to have no self restraint. It was it was embarrassing. People did it. Some people did, but by and large, society held together because the the glue that cemented relationships remained strong. And of course, as everybody knows, this changed takes place, shall we say, somewhere around about the early 60s, and uh, pretty soon you've got um, a, a weird idea. You've got the idea that uh, students are in charge at universities. Whoa, hello? When did that happen? If you were lucky enough to go to school on the GI Bill when you came back from World War II, uh, or for that matter, World War I, and you, you, you were lucky enough to get an education. You went there. You sat respectfully at the feet of the teachers. And uh, you tried your hardest to, to work successfully and effectively and graduate. But wait a second. Comes the 1960s. And uh, things change. All of a sudden, it's students grading professors. It's students locking professors out of the buildings. It's student sit-down protests. And then, of course, the, uh, the government uh, reacts at some point as well. And, of course, not to forget, uh, we had the Vietnam War period as well going on then. And, uh, and so, you know, things accelerated and, and built up on, on each other. And the, the, the so-called free speech movement... Uh, got going 1964-65. That was in Berkeley, California, spread around campuses around the United States. Uh, a few years later was uh, spring 1970. We had the um, big student protests at uh, Kent State University in Ohio, and uh, the National Guardsmen came in, opened fire, fired nearly 70 rounds of live ammunition and killed four students. It was unbelievably turbulent. It was a crazy time. And as you can imagine, that precipitated uh, massive change as well. Uh, meanwhile, on, on other fronts, you, uh, you had the birth control pill being invented, uh, 62, 63. And of course, if you think about it, that meant that for the very first time in, in American history, perhaps human history, uh, men could prolong adolescence uh, beyond all previously held records. For the first time in history, male responsibility in, uh, in, in, in areas of sexual intimacy 
uh, went out the window. All of a sudden, a man's responsibility extended as far as saying, did you remember to take your pill, honey? And, and that, that was where it was at. So uh, things were massively changing, whereas up till that point, you know, it was a different world. Up to that point, there were boy, men's schools, there were women's schools, and they had occasional get-togethers and dances. But the idea of men being allowed into women's dormitories, not at all. As a matter of fact, universities saw themselves as uh, uh, being in loco parentis. They saw themselves as protecting the role of parents. They saw themselves sitting in for parents. They were basically saying, you can send your children to us in safety, even though they're far away from home, you can know that we will do everything we can to protect your children physically in terms of their bodies not getting hurt, and we will also do everything we can to protect them spiritually in terms of their values and spiritual beliefs not being jeopardized. That was how it used to be. And then the changes began, and, uh, and, and turbulence swirled around the foundations of civilization in America. Um, the parents and grandparents of particularly young people in their early 20s didn't know what to make of what was going on. It, it was as, as if their entire world was turned upside down. Some of them said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And, uh, and it, it began to look a little preposterous as... Uh, people old enough to know better began shedding the, the dignity of their years and began trying to behave as if they too uh, were teenagers or, or, or uh, young adults. Uh, we, we had an America that since its founding taught the value of masculine honor. There was such a thing as being a man. And if somebody said, you got to grow up to be a real man, nobody had to explain that. We all understood what that meant. We understood that uh, self-restraint was important. Self-discipline was important. You're a child as long as you need somebody else to discipline you. But uh, as an adult, why, you're capable of self-discipline and self-restraint, and that changes everything, doesn't it? But all of a sudden, around about this period, as I say, look at it as the early 60s, uh, all of that began to go out the window. And self-discipline and self-restraint were replaced by, if it feels good, do it. All of this, uh, the idea of, of honor, a man behaving respectfully towards a woman, well, that was changed by the Beatles song of that period, All You Need Is Love. That's right. That's all you need. And the culture went into convulsions. And the truth is that uh, what is popular culture today would have been unrecognizable to somebody from the 1950s. I will tell you that uh, the, the kind of entertainment you can see on, on cable television in, in your living room tonight truly would have made a hardened convict of 1950 blush with embarrassment. I'm serious. The kind of jokes that comedians make on primetime television, a convict would have blushed. And today, our children hear these things. It's a different world. And we do need to try and understand what it is that was going on. 
How did this all come about? What made this happen? And why in that period of the early 60s? Was it something in the water? No. Uh, was it uh, a mood in the air, a sort of zeitgeist just per per permeating? Well, that's what it eventually became, of course. And uh, when people, young people flocked to San Francisco in the summer of 67, was it the summer of love? Uh, that, again, what made them? It was the music, you know, and people's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, obviously, the music picked up on it all. But that sort of music wouldn't have worked back in the days of Bing Crosby. He couldn't have sung that sort of stuff. And, uh, and then pretty soon it all began to change. What was happening? How did this come about? What made it take place? That's what I want to explain next. And uh, before I do that, I want to remind you about my website. I obviously would love for you to visit. One of the reasons is because you can communicate with me through the website. There's a Contact Us tab, and it uh, sends an email, which I do get to read. And uh, I don't get to answer them all, but you'd be astounded at how many I actually do answer. And, um, and I like reading what you have to say. Sometimes you give me ideas for uh, topics that need to be discussed. Sometimes you give me advice of ways to, to improve what it is we're talking about or how I'm doing it. Uh, or sometimes it's a question uh, that makes its way into our popular Ask the Rabbi feature, and we answer that once a week. You might want to sign on to our email list uh, where instead of uh, bothering you with a Niagara-like cascade of never-ending emails, uh, we're very meticulous about your time, and we uh, make sure that you get only one or two emails every week, all of them containing um, uplifting and insightful strategies of a spiritual source that can impact your lives socially, family-wise, and yes, finance-wise as well. So uh, visit the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And you've got to be careful to get both L's in, right? Because Daniel ends with an L and L-A-P-I-N, Lappin, begins with one. So RabbiDanielLappin.com is the website. And, um, and uh, right over there, you'll find out probably more about me than you even want to know. But uh, we will also be able to communicate, and I love that. Uh, thanks so much for being part of the show. Really appreciate it. And a uh, quick break now. When we come back, let's get right into what happened at the beginning of the 1960s. Why? This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Are there circumstances? Can I conceive of circumstances under which internment camps for any number of groups or peoples? Can I conjure? Can I imagine? Can I conceive of circumstances in which I would support such a thing? The answer is absolutely there are. The question now is what circumstances? Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Now, here we are together again on the podcast, and what we're talking about is what happened in the 60s. Why is it that things seem to have held together in terms of American values, in terms of the sense that America was a special, wonderful place, and in terms of the, 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 the principles that governed everyday life? What happened? What changed in the early 1960s? And uh, the answer to that 
lies in, well, it actually, why, why don't I let you into my workshop and uh, tell you a little bit about, um, well, where, where the information comes from that I share with you. Uh, where it comes from is the fifth chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, where it talks about uh, generation after generation, you know, from, from Adam and uh, Adam's um, sons, and then after that all the way down through Methuselah, the, the, the oldest man who ever lived, and uh, after that, eventually culminating at the end of chapter 5 in Genesis with the birth of Noah. So in that chapter, you basically get a, a sort of overview of the 10 generations from Adam to Noah. Now, what's that all about? Now, what possible good can that do for me? Number one. Number two, obviously, um, thousands of people were being born, right, in each generation. So why does it just tell us the, the, the names of one person in each generation? Like, what were they, the chiefs or something? Well, it should have said that. No. Uh, the ancient Jewish wisdom explains that that chapter in the book of Genesis is really showing how cultural and social trends shape from generation to generation. Uh, the idea that if a generation has a particular idea, a particular way of looking at things, and it evolves during their adulthood. So during the years of when, when people of a particular generation, you've heard people speak about Generation X and the millennials and the baby boomers. Well, in every generation, things change, right? And so a generation imparts to their children, the next generation, the closing point of what they evolved and changed. So you do get change from generation to generation. You know, I always speak about the fact that everybody needs a rabbi. Why? And I say because that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And I, I, I regard that as a slogan by means of which I live my life, I conduct business, and I teach that way. The more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And what I meant by that was that you know, technology changes. Great. It's wonderful. I, I love the latest technology. Let's go for it. It's terrific. But uh, we can indulge ourselves with those things as long as we know which things should never change. What are the things that should never change? Uh, the nature of the correct relationship between spouses, the relationship between parents and children, uh, the relationship between citizens and their government. Uh, all kinds of things like this are at the bedrock of social structure. And if we want any kind of stability that allows people to live in freedom and prosperity and tranquility, you need to have predictability. You need to have some kind of stability in terms of the, the values that really matter. And so, you know, it's a little bit like uh, a house. You know, how does your house and my house differ and how are our houses the same? Well, uh, we all have walls. We all have floors. We have uh, maybe carpets or rugs in some places. We have windows. We have a roof that keeps the rain out. And in some parts of the country, we have cooling systems that uh, keep us cool in the oppressive heat of summer. In other places, we have heating systems to keep us warm. I think I've described your house just as well as I've described my house. But then we come to the distinctions. You have artwork of a very high quality on your walls. Me, I have pictures from my family boating trips. Um, you have um, 
perhaps fine furniture. And uh, I have furniture that looks as if um, a bunch of kids are raised in in the house and have worked their way through the furniture. Um, You might have uh, a lot of vases and knickknacks and uh, decorative items. I got none of those. Um, I've got bookcases with about 4,000 books on them. You might have uh, bookcases with uh, a few magazines on them. Whatever it is, those are the areas we differ. Those are the areas in which we express our individualism and our personality, our, our own private way of feeling comfortable. But the overall structure of the house remains the same. It's like that with society as well. Uh, there are certain things that for the stability of society, it's best they don't change. And revolutions, cultural revolutions, generally cause a great deal of misery, a great deal of suffering, and yes, a great deal of death. So the generations described in chapter 5 show us that these are not particularly individuals we're talking about. They're cultural trends in each generation. Now, obviously, in uh, the English language, uh, Mahalalel or Jared or Enoch or Methuselah doesn't mean anything. They're just like proper nouns. They're just like people's names. However, because you have a rabbi, that would be me, uh, I'm able to share with you uh, secrets embedded in the Lord's language, which is Hebrew. And what we have there is that every generation actually means something. It's a cultural trend. And we're not going to take the time to to go through them all now, but it does help us understand what took place in the generation we're talking about leading up to 1960. And the way to think about it is to think about the end of World War II, 1945, right? The the war ends, and uh, people come on home. Servicemen start getting home sometimes, you know, it might have been 46 or 47, by the time they got demobilized and discharged. But at that point, uh, men in their early 20s, maybe up to 25, these are men who fought their way onto the beaches of Normandy. Uh, They slogged through Europe. These are the men who who took a, a terrible beating landing on the islands of the Pacific. Um, these were tough men. These were men who had sacrificed their, the, the, the golden years of their youth to defend freedom and save America and save civilization. And not for nothing, they have often been referred to as the greatest generation. And uh, what happened when these people came back? Did they start partying? Yeah, there might have been some. But by and large, they got down to rebuilding their lives. They've given to their country, they'd sacrificed, they'd survived, they came home. And uh, what they did, most times they got married very often to the sweetheart they'd left behind. uh, And they started working, and they threw themselves into their work with the same verve and passion and discipline into which they threw themselves onto the beaches of Normandy and through the battlefields of Europe. And not surprisingly they began to spur an amazing post-war economic recovery. Because when you've got millions of people working hard with the right spiritual characteristics of resourcefulness and resilience and grit and determination, don't be surprised if great things happen. 
and if you're able to throw yourself into your work with that same kind of passion and dedication, don't be surprised if things happen there too. But that's what happened in the second half of the 1940s. And then very soon they were able to move out of their apartments and they began to move into houses. And builders all around the country started building homes for servicemen, for ex-servicemen. Some of them went to college university first and they got degrees. And then they began throwing themselves into their careers. But whatever it was, to this day you can find large tracts of homes in almost any major city in the country, like millions of homes. Um, that were all built for the returning servicemen of World War II, all built in that period of the early 50s. You can almost recognize them. And uh, that's what happened. They moved in and they started raising families. And so you figure it out, comes 1960 or the early 1960s, and uh, their children are in the closing years of high school and they're coming of age. And... um, what happens? Well, a great rabbi who was a teacher of mine once said that uh, when you yourself grow up without a whole lot, there's a very big danger. And that danger is that in your devotion and your dedication to give to your children everything that you did not have, You completely forget to give your children all those things you did have. And that is what describes the greatest generation. See, think about it. You're talking about people who went off to World War II in 1941, 1942. And what were they at that that stage? You know, 20, 21, 22 maybe. Whatever, they were somewhere around about there. Which means when they were born... Roughly speaking, and again, you know, a few years here or there doesn't matter, but uh, for argument's sake, they were born, shall we say, around about 1920. Might have been 18, might have been 22, but they were 10 years old when the Depression hit, the Great Depression. Now, I remember, I remember my father walking the hallways of our house late at night, assuming that I was asleep, and I could hear him talking to himself struggling to work out his finances, how he was going to pay for this, how we were going to pay for that. And he was sort of talking out aloud to himself in his pain and in his frustration. And he had no idea he was doing it. He certainly had no idea I was listening. But I'll tell you something, I've never forgotten it. And anybody who remembers financial struggles of his parents never, ever forgets it. I, I had a friend once who was uh, one of the most brilliant economists at a fantastic investment bank called Drexel Burnham. Uh, Bad things happened afterwards, and and it was very, very sad. But um, this particular economist, a remarkable man, brilliant economist, grew up as the child of a poverty-stricken single mom in Jamaica. And uh, I once asked him, Um, what would be chiefly responsible for his remarkable success in life? And he said to me, Rabbi, when you have seen your mother go late at night to the restaurants in Kingston, Jamaica, as they're about to close, walking down the hill, 
and to go around to the restaurants begging their candles. You know how restaurants put romantic candles on all the tables, and then at the end of the night they throw them out. They put in fresh candles the next night. And you see your mother begging the candles from the restaurants, and she'd come home with 20 candles, each one just a stub of a candle, and then she'd light them to make sure that I would use those to do my homework and my studying at each night. He said, Rabbi, when you've seen your mother do that, you work, you work like the devils of starvation are at your heels. He says, I got into the habit as a young boy of working hard because I knew how much my mother sacrificed, and I had to make it worthwhile for her. And he says, the, the proudest day of my life was when I was able to bring her to the United States and buy her a home. And, uh, and that's what we're talking about. Talking about a generation that watched their parents endure the terrible depression. A depression that, by the way, was made worse by government policies, not better, but that's another podcast. And then they, um, they had their children finally, right, 1950s. And they were so determined to give their children everything of the best. They worked hard, and they did build up affluence. And they made sure that their children never had to worry about anything material, ever. Children had everything of the best. And it didn't occur to them that they had to actively do something about implanting in their children the qualities that they were given as children. The diligence, the determination, the sense of specialness about America, the gratitude, all of these things their children grew up without. Their children grew up with a sense of entitlement. May I say, their children grew up one of the most spoiled generations of history. And that is the generation that became, among other things, the hippies. Where else in the world, at what other time of history, have young adults been able to shirk off the responsibilities of adulthood and become hippies? It was only the children of the greatest generation. And we'll look a little further into that as we move on in the next segment of this podcast. Thanks so much for being part of it. I so much appreciate you being there. And I hope you'll hold on for a moment as we get ready to get into the next segment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Buck Sexton. It's a shame that we can't get common sense like Bobby Jindal to come out from every single candidate. I know Trump's out there telling everybody he's, I'm very pro-Second Amendment. I'm very, I know, I know your security chief. He's very well armed. But, you know, Trump does, his kids go out and shoot. We've seen that. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Well, here we are, back together again. And uh, we were talking about how generations convey values and how the, the starting threshold of one generation is not where the previous generation started, but where the previous generation ended. And uh, I'd alluded briefly uh, in an earlier segment to the fact that um, the generations in the Bible in chapter 5 
uh, are the ones that give me the hint of understanding and how ancient Jewish wisdom understands this. So um, the, 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 the point was, why would there be mention of only one person in each generation? I mean, maybe give a list of the, the important people in each generation, but no. In, <clears throat> in each generation, in chapter 5 of Genesis, and for those of you who are uh, not biblically interested, uh, this is only going to take a few moments, and uh, and then I'll continue. And I always have to f I feel I have to give that little caveat because I know that uh, we are fortunate enough to have listeners from right across the the spectrum. Those who are interested in the Bible, those who believe in the Bible's divinity, um, as I personally do. But then we've also got people who do not, <clears throat> and so I want to make sure that. Everybody is reasonably comfortable. But uh, this is interesting, I think, for everybody, simply because the book is just so incredibly influential in the history of Western civilization. And um, what we discover is that uh, there was a guy called Canaan, or at least the way I'm now explaining it, a generation called Canaan. And that would be um, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, 11, 12, somewhere around about there if you want to see it. And then it turns out that the generation of Canaan ends, and we end up, we arrive with the generation of Mahalalel. And, the gener and that's around about verse 15 in chapter 5 of Genesis. And then Mahalalel's generation is over, and uh, we come to the generation of Enoch. Um, excuse me. Um, uh, uh, excuse me, we've got um, uh, Jared. Uh, right after Mahalalel, we've got Jared, and that's uh, verse 16. And so uh, the important thing is that sequence of three, Canaan, Mahalalel, and Jared. And as I said, in uh, the Bible, in, in the Lord's language, there are no such things as just names. You know, for instance, uh, does the name Fred actually have a meaning, Frederick? Um, not that I'm aware of. Maybe it does, but it's certainly not well known. In Hebrew, every single name in the Bible has a very specific and well-known meaning. And so uh, Canaan, Canaan is material acquisition. Uh, it, al it is also, not surprisingly, uh, uh, somewhat linked to, uh, to uh, Cain, the, the, the guy who killed Abel a little bit earlier. But uh, at any rate, uh, Canaan means material acquisition. After him comes Mahalalel, which is um, self-centeredness, um, no big focus on material acquisition. Um, and then followed there by that is Jared, which means decline, going down, which, by the way, is, is in no way a, a denigrating aspect of the name Jared. It's a lovely name. And, uh, and so if, if, if you're called Jared or if you're calling your, your son Jared, no problem. But in, in the Bible, when it has a generational aspect, um, it's, it's the word used to describe a generation that goes into cultural decline following the two previous generations. So in, in any epoch, this is what you're likely to find. And we, we saw this in the post-World War II generation, a tremendous focus on building up their lives materially. Uh, working very hard and and creating uh, an affluence that wasn't there in in their youth and in their wartime years, and all obviously very understandable. And then 
they have children, and these children grow up in the lap of luxury, well, somewhat luxuriously, certainly never having to worry about anything, and at the same time neglected spiritually. These children grow up uh, with their parents assuming that with them working as hard as they are, their children will automatically, uh, by osmosis, as it were, just by cultural uh, contact and, and closeness, uh, the children would pick up all the values that the parents had, but it never works out that way. You've really got to work at it. Uh, children won't necessarily pick up your values. And uh, what they saw you doing was focusing on acquisition. And so they found it very easy to mock that and scorn it and view it with disdain. And, and, they, and, and they did. And the, the art and the literature and the entertainment of that period tended to mock the man in the gray suit. It mocked the man going off to work every day. And, uh, and, and it yielded this generation, you know, the 60s and the 70s, where the focus was, was very much on the self. Um, these were not people who, who, uh, who figured out what um, areas of work or career or profession to engage in. If they went to college... They didn't think about what to make a living with. They took courses that, that had no particular relevance. You know, if you're going to take middle period Etruscan pottery, you'll probably become quite knowledgeable about middle period Etruscan pottery, if that's your whim. But uh, not a whole lot of career opportunity for people with that particular skill set. And then what happens after that? Well, right after that comes Jared. That comes the decline. And sure enough, uh, from the from about um, the eighties onwards, we saw a generation of uh, of deterioration and decline. You might remember in seventy nine eighty, you might have remember interest rates up at eighteen or nineteen percent, and uh, a general <coughs> economic deterioration. And uh, <coughs> excuse me. And a general economic deterioration and uh, and 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 downward slide, but yes, that's exactly what happens. That is the 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 sequence entirely to be expected. And what happens is, of course, that uh, we discover that there's further sequencing. And although I'm not going to go further in 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 um, chapter five with uh, with Enoch and Methuselah, uh, but what. What we do know is that in the uh, generational sequencing, once the idea of self-restraint has been lost from a generation, it becomes very difficult to replace. And uh, we, we obviously we saw this during the 60s and 70s. Uh, the, there were changes not just in the way that people dressed, and it wasn't just the swinging 60s in London and the British music invasion and the, the long hair of the musical hair, and it wasn't just all of that uh, cultural upheaval, but it was also a very subtle, but at the same time a very powerful vanishing of self-restraint as a virtue. What became a virtue was seizing the moment, Grab what you can. And uh, when this begins to express itself, as it usually does in the sexual arena, 
naturally you have uh, marriage falling down and, uh, and, and, and a decline in that area. And funnily enough, what happens after that, once there is a decline in sexual standards of, in a society, uh, the next generational step is a massive decline in economic standards. And when you think about it, it's really not very hard to understand, is it? Because the, uh, the, 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 the self-restraint muscle gets maximum workout in the sexual arena. But uh, it's also something we need. I mean, just picking yourself up and going to work every day. I mean, how about Monday morning? I mean, throwing yourself into work and, uh, and making that a, uh, an important part of your life that means very much exercising self-restraint. In other words, restraining yourself from doing what you really want to do. And when a, uh, when a society has gone overboard on something that to begin with was a virtuous concept, namely there should be a, uh, a safety net of security for people for whom things have gone bad economically, and when that turns into a viable alternative to working for a living, when it actually becomes possible, and in some parts of the country, like um, some cities on the eastern seaboard, for instance, and parts of California, where when you add together all the benefits that you can get as a non-working adult, uh, you're talking sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. And I kid you not, this is no exaggeration. And so when you've got that kind of incentive not to work, uh, the effort involved in driving yourself to build yourself up and to create a livelihood and an independent financial reality, that is tremendously difficult, incredibly demanding, and, um, and, and not something that, that comes easily at all. So not surprisingly, as we see generationally, we see sexual self-restraint go, then financial or, or working uh, self-discipline begins to slide. And uh, after that, the culture begins to take an economic hit. And again, it's, it's simply not hard at all to see that that's precisely where we are today. Well, the uh, important thing to understand is that uh, it's not that easy to go ahead and, um, and read the future. In other words, seeing the trends that have shaped the past is one thing. But um, moving forward and seeing where things head, one, one, one can't do that when it comes to individuals or small groups of people. But the larger the group of people, the, the closer it begins to resemble a, a, a culture or a society, the more likely it is to follow trends. What I mean by that is, uh, for instance, um, say that... Uh, uh, you yell fire to the person sitting opposite you in the room. He's going to look up and say, what? What did you say? Well, I said fire. Is it, like, what do you mean? Like, did you mean fire a gun or, or a conflagration? What are you talking about? And you shrug your shoulders and you walk away. But if you shout fire, as they say, in a crowded theater, what happens then? You know what's going to happen. There may well be a stampede. And that's the point. You can, be, you can predict behavior of large groups of people. You can't predict behavior of any one individual. On an individual level, each, and of, each one of us has 
free choice. <laughs> you know, what each one of us is going to do at any given moment, nobody else can determine. But somehow or another, when we become part of a large group, everything is different, and it, it really is possible to see. So so what are the ancient Jewish wisdom hints of where things go after sexual a deterioration of sexual morality in a society followed by deterioration of uh, discipline in the financial and economic arena resulting in a lowering of the standard of living, a lowering of the GDP of that society. And this has been true for, for thousands of years. I mean, you know, certain things don't change. And, uh, and, and what comes next? What after that? Well, the next thing that happens is a military weakness. Why, why does that happen? Well, because the ability to wage war is a function of economic strength. That's one of the reasons that in the 20th century, Germany was so uh, formidable. It was a very large population compared to the other countries of Europe, and it was a very disciplined population. And so they worked, they were, they, they, they were creative, there was a GDP, there was affluence, and the money was there in order to strengthen the military capability. Uh, when you are in a situation that the United States finds itself uh, in at the moment, it's, it's been an, a number of years already of economic pullback. And all of this, of course, is always presented in positive terms. What sort of positive terms? Well, how's about reusing the towel in the hotel you stayed at last month? Those sort of positive terms. What are you talking about, Laffin? I'll explain to you in just a moment when we get back. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Laffin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Don't come here. Stay there because the genius of our attack, the heart of the terror in our terrorism is that it won't just be New York, L.A., Dallas, Philadelphia, Miami, San Francisco. It will be South Carolina. It will be North Dakota. It will be Missouri. It will be East Texas. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, as we uh, paused at the end of the last segment, I spoke about reusing towels. What's that got to do with anything? Well, it's, it's like this, you see. Uh, what happens when a, a once proud culture begins to deteriorate is that it finds excuses and it finds justifications. And in that sense, it's, it's not that different from uh, children who get caught uh, doing something and they make an excuse of why they, why they did it. Or, or sometimes uh, one, uh, one has a, a co-worker who refuses or is just not trained or, or not knowledgeable on, on, on the right way to handle a mistake, you know, to confront it and own it and acknowledge it. Um, and, and instead either makes excuses or, even worse, turns it into a virtue. Well, it was a good thing that I screwed up. It, it has all kinds of benefits on it. We never even realized. And, of course, uh, that seldom works. But that's what a culture does as well. And so uh, 
one of the uh, one of the 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 beautiful, um, elegant, and very tragic ways in which this deterioration is covered up um, is through environmentalism, and uh, and in, in exactly how this works belongs in another podcast. But what is working, what is happening, is something that uh, I can definitely try and depict for you right now, which is that as our American culture declines in um, in economic creativity, uh, there are certain stratagems that a government uses to try and conceal that fact and in order to sort of... Um, drum people up with enthusiasm so that they will vote the right way for the next election. And several ways of doing that. One, of course, is inflating the currency by printing more money. And uh, and that is is something which is tremendously destructive, but it, uh, it does enable the government to conceal deterioration and it enables a government to also uh, continue collecting taxes at an even in, a more enhanced level uh, because what happens is that the uh, that the 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 inflation is accompanied by wage increases and minimum wage increases, all of which makes um, foolish, docile people delirious with delight, and um, nobody realizes that uh, in fact their money is worthless. And what is even more disturbing is that they've been elevated to new tax brackets. And, of course, uh, we all know what a progressive tax system says. It says that the higher up you go in brackets, the more you have to pay, which, again, is exactly what the tax man wants to see happening. And I'm sure this is perfectly obvious to all of you. But uh, there are other ways as well of concealing the fact that things have uh, been going downhill and been deteriorating. And one of those is to ask people uh, to voluntarily cut back. Now, if, you know, again, thinking about it, it's, it's so extraordinary, you would think, so extraordinary that, uh, that, that you would be asked to use less gasoline or to use less uh, water or to use less electricity. These are things that are commodities just like anything else, and, uh, and the companies supplying them should be delighted that the demand for them has gone up and that you'd want to buy more of them, and, uh, and they'd make more money and more profit, and everything is good. I mean, it's so bizarre. You might remember this already started back in, uh, uh, in the late 70s where uh, uh, President Jimmy Carter for his second term in 1976, I think it was, um, walked to the inauguration instead of riding to save, to sort of make the symbolic gesture of saving gas. And he was the one who was seen on television saying, you know, put on a sweater, turn down the thermostat and put on a sweater. What was that all about? <laughs> well, that was uh, essentially camouflaging the economic calamity that had begun to sweep the country. Now, again, with 300 million people, there's an awful lot of economic momentum, and so a government has the capacity to conceal things for quite a while. But, of course, there are really other very visible signs that things are deteriorating, and one of them is that um, commodities go into shortage. And... Uh, 
And although there was no reason whatsoever to, uh, to, to uh, emphasize a gas or an energy shortage, and there, was no, there is no reason to speak of an electricity shortage, but this is now the culture. You see, because one of the things that happens is, and, and you, can, you can unfortunately see this with the sad in, uh, cases with individuals as well, and that is when, uh, when they're short of money, one of the things that goes is maintenance. And so, um, you know, particularly uh, as we've watched in, in recent years, there have been times of economic decline and economic pressure. There have been, uh, particularly in certain states, uh, companies closing, companies moving, companies sending work out of the country, and there have been a lot of people losing jobs. This has been going on now for a number of years. And again, this is something the government goes to great lengths to try and conceal, but uh, there have been a tremendous number of jobs lost. And what happens when, when somebody loses a job, obviously they start looking for another job, uh, they immediately start cutting back on expenses to make their reserves last as long as they possibly can. And one of the sad, sad indicators in a neighborhood that somebody's in financial stress is when the house begins to lose its external appearance, right? I mean, you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's horrible to see because you know what's going on and, you know, you don't know if you can help at all. But the first thing, you know, you'll notice that the gardener doesn't come anymore. So uh, the, the, the lawn gets overgrown and the bushes and the flower, not, you know, things aren't being done. And then if, if it goes on long enough, uh, you notice that, uh, you know, some paint starts peeling or uh, something gets broken and doesn't get repaired. Same thing happens with cars. You know, ordinarily you... Um, if, if everything is going well and there's a slight problem with your car, you get it repaired right away. But what happens if, if you don't? And then the, the, uh, the, 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 the postponed maintenance gets visible. Uh, it happens as well with people, too. A visit to the doctor gets postponed. A visit to the dentist gets postponed. Uh, when there's financial stress, the maintenance gets deferred. Well, exactly the same thing happens with the country. It happens with city governments and county governments and state governments and, yes, federal governments as well. And what happens is that um, the capacity to supply things like energy begin to uh, deteriorate. And rather than saying, hey, everybody, we, your government, have screwed up and we're not able to supply everything you need, they turn it now into a virtue help save the planet. Don't use so much carbon. And so I get a letter every month from the electric company, and I, I've got to think you do too, <laughs> unless I'm a really terrible person. I get a letter from the electric company nearly every month um, showing a graph of how much electricity I've used compared to my neighbors and compared to my really energy-efficient neighbors. And uh, it always comes out that I'm using more. And this is meant to make me feel guilty. This is meant to sort of shame me into using less electricity. Uh, if it's winter, I must turn down the thermostat and wear a sweater. If it's summer, I should uh, use a fan instead of the air conditioner. This is all the goal. Why? Well, because, <laughs> yes, there, there is a, uh, uh, a growing inability to supply infrastructure. That, that is there. There's no question about it. Have you noticed, perhaps in your town where you live, you might have noticed more potholes on the road than you remember 10 or 15 years ago. And that's part of the same thing. They're, they're not maintaining. 
uh, part of that also is that uh, available money gets used to hire new people and to put more people on government payroll. Well, that means there's less to use for maintenance. And so it goes as, as time goes by. You have to recognize the deterioration. You have to recognize how things are happening and also the power of ideas that uh, it, it takes a while. As I said, a, an economy has momentum and a big mo economy has big momentum. It takes a while. But if you understand how the world really works, you can go back in time, not that long, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and begin to see how certain ideas that caught fire in the minds of men then influence what people do and what people behave and how people act. And uh, little by little, this begins to show its effect in, 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 in very visible ways within that culture. And disturbingly, of course, one of them is a decline of military power, a decline of a country's ability to defend itself. And you might say, well, you know, we're not, we're not being attacked by anybody. Well, uh, that's maybe yes and maybe no, depending on, on your viewpoint on those things. However... When it becomes demonstrably clear to people that you can no longer defend your interests, then other groups, other nations, decide to step in and help themselves to some of those interests on an economic level. And so, whereas it was one time uh, the something that the United States considered was a sacred duty was the protection of uh, sea lanes for free transport of trade. Well, that's already beginning to change. We're, we're at the early phases of this, but as it becomes more and more clear that uh, we are cutting back on the military and uh, we're cutting back on the size of the Navy and we're no longer willing to project our power in any way at all, well then, you're not surprised at all to see China that has a very long-term view of history and has been waiting for its opportunity to regain what it believes to be its place in the sun. It's no surprise to see China launch its first aircraft carrier. It's no surprise to see China doing land reclamation projects on disputed islands in the South China Sea. And um, it's not hard, I don't think, to see. You don't need any prophetic insight uh, to know that as, as time goes by, uh, free trade through that area will be impacted. It's not going to be hard to see that uh, China is exercising more and more control over the metal lithium, which is an element and it's a metal. The reason it's such an important strategic metal, of course, is because, uh, well, you know what lithium-ion batteries are. Every time you open your, uh, your tablet or your, uh, or your uh, cell phone, uh, it works because of lithium-ion batteries, and lithium is needed. Well, uh, it's going to become more and more expensive for the United States to secure its supplies of lithium. Why? Well, because China is very much aware of the strategic necessity of that mineral, uh, China has basically locked up African trade. Today, virtually every single bridge, road project, railroad project, 
major building project going on on the continent of Africa is being done by Chinese companies, many of which are extended arms of the Chinese Communist government. And, um, and China owns Africa. And in exchange for those projects and, uh, and railroads and buildings and everything else that Chinese uh, people are building in Africa, what happens is they take shiploads of, uh, of natural materials, of resources from Africa. Africa is, of course, extraordinarily rich in resources. And uh, those go back to China. So things are changing. There's no question about it. And uh, we've, we've had uh, poor leadership in the United States of America for a number of years, very, very poor leadership, leadership that uh, may be intelligent and may be skilled, but is not wise. A leadership that truly doesn't understand how the world really works. But uh, you, listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show on The Blaze, this podcast, you are picking up on how the world really works. And apart from anything else, just your very interest in knowing how the world really works uh, is enough to already put you at the forefront of leadership whether it's um, whether it's business wise or social wise or or, or uh, politically wise, but uh, wanting to know how the world really works and trying to get to know how the world really works are absolutely essential for effective leadership. And uh, part of that, of course, involves understanding another change that has been going on in America lately, and that is the move towards cities and the extent to which cities tend to be far more liberal, far more committed to the faith of secular fundamentalism than rural areas. And what does that mean? Let me explain that just as soon as we get back. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss... A lot of people have noticed. Okay, this guy's writing 46 letters to these offenders who've committed felonies and hasn't so much as mentioned Catherine Steinel. Hasn't mentioned the woman who was shot and killed for no reason. Well, you know. Just randomly in San Francisco with this uh, five-time deported illegal alien. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks so much for being together with me as we explore further changes that impact our culture. And one of the most interesting things is the speed at which things happen. Uh, there is no question that cultural trends accelerate, and things happen far more quickly now than they did a while back. Uh, for instance, think about the urbanization of America's population. Uh, right now, it's, it's really quite extraordinary to think about it, but right now, 75% of the land area of the United States is rural, and it contains only 16% of the country's population. Now, uh, 100 years ago, that was reversed. The majority of the population was rural. But now the majority of the population is urban and moving quickly, very quick. Now, here's why this is of some concern. Think about this for a moment. You, might, you will remember the blue-red election maps that the television networks started showing. I think the first time they did it was the 2000 election, George W. Bush. 
And uh, the, uh, the, the trouble is that what they were showing was elections state by state. And so the map was a map of the United States of America uh, with the outlines of all the states. And states were then marked either blue or red, depending on how they were going. The reality, however, is that the way to really understand the nature of this country is by looking at a map not of states, but of counties. And with 3,000 counties, we discover something very interesting indeed. And that is that states that went blue, states that went Democrat, if we were to exclude the coastal strip of California, for instance, the rest of the state is red. The problem is that the population has moved away from the red part to the coastal part, and so California goes Democrat. Uh, Oregon, Oregon, overwhelmingly red. If you look at the county map, they're mostly Republican and conservative. However, uh, the Portland area has a growing part of the population, and it goes blue. Um, the state of Washington, virtually the entire state of Washington is red. It's conservative, with the exception of King County, the Seattle, Tacoma, um, and the Everett, that, that whole corridor, that I-5 corridor, uh, goes blue because it's the urban area. Would you believe the state of New York, which votes Democrat, if you look at the county maps of New York, the majority of the land area of New York is conservative. Trouble is, the majority of the population is in the New York Metropolitan District. The same is true of Colorado. Overwhelmingly red, excepting when you look at the Boulder-Denver-Pueblo axis, solidly blue, and a majority of the population. And so there are two questions here. One question is, does living in a city turn a conservative into a liberal, or do cities attract liberals? Which is it? But there is no question about it that if you look at this map I've been describing carefully, and it's easily available online, you'll see that the cities are all blue, the rural areas are all red. But the trouble is people are leaving the rural areas and moving into the cities, so if conservative people move into the cities, will they help to make the cities conservative or will the cities turn them into liberals? What do you think it is? It's a real challenge. What is really going on? So first of all, let's explore for a moment. Why do you suppose it is that cities tend to be populated by, by liberals? Why do cities swing liberals so strongly? Well, Let's think about life in the city and contrast it with the rural area. In the rural area, you are accustomed to being independent, self-reliant, and close with your neighbors and friends. And so if something crops up, you have people who call on. They call on you. But it is a culture much more along the lines the founders of America envisaged. But what happens in a city? Think about it for a moment. There are people, and when I think city, think the ultimate city, or I think of Manhattan. But, uh, you know, if you're looking at downtown Dallas, even, even Dallas, you've got the same phenomenon. 
a lot of the liberal voters of Dallas are concentrated in the downtown areas. So what is going on here? Well, think about what life is like in these cities. First of all, um, you can live in a Manhattan high-rise and truly not know any of the other people in the building. Everybody minds their own business in a city. Have you noticed that uh, when you're in the, the country, everybody greets each other, right? You don't greet people in the city. It doesn't happen. Let, let alone on the sidewalk, you don't even greet them in your building. People don't. I mean, there are exceptions, but for the most part, uh, people live alone in the city. That's, that's a very, very big distinction. So right there, you've got a liberal conservative switch uh, within a city compared to the urban areas. There's something else going on, and that is that um, in rural areas, when you need help, who do you usually turn to? Turn to neighbors, right? First of all, you try and take care of things yourself. But uh, if you need help, you turn to neighbors and friends. In the city, who do you turn to if you need help? You know what the answer is? 911. You turn to governmental authorities. In rural areas, many people have their own water wells. They take care of their own water needs. Some of them even generate their own electricity. But in the city, think for a moment, if you're on the 40th floor of a, uh, of a condo or an apartment building, how do you get around? Well, you need electricity because if the electricity goes out, that elevator of yours is going to stop working. And who do you turn to, to electri for electricity? You don't think of it as a private company. You think of it as a quasi-governmental organization. Electricity, yeah, who does that come from? And um, so it's not just security. You turn to the police. But your water, you depend on gov a, a semi-governmental agency. Your power, semi-governmental agency. Now, your electricity is on, so you finally are able to take the elevator down to the ground floor, but now you've got to travel to work or, or to, for a social engagement. How do you move? Well, once again, you turn to government. The subway or the bus is, again, a quasi-governmental agency. Uh, or you might use a cab, which is a government-regulated organization, so much so that when private driving uh, organizations like Uber, for instance, uh, want to operate in a city, they invariably encounter overwhelming hostility from the governmental powers in the city who are beholden to the taxi driver unions and to the owners of the taxi driver companies. So uh, everything in a city becomes more and more government-centric, whereas some measure of emotional and financial and real-life independence can only be attained in the city. Excuse me, pardon me, in, in the rural areas and the countryside. And so it makes perfect sense to me. I don't really have a lot of trouble understanding why it is that uh, country folk tend to be more conservative. City folk, well, you're so tightly knit with government, basically taking care of you on, on every level. All your fears, all your nightmares are assuaged by the government will take care of it. And that's just not the way people think in the country. It's not how farmers think. And so in urban areas, people tend to 
be very government focused and very government centric that's what they and that of course is one of the great definitions is it not of uh, of uh, being a liberal of being a secular fundamentalist you you tend to think you need government and the more your needs the bigger the government has to be obviously but how about people moving into cities do conservatives moving into cities become liberal or do they stay conservative, influencing the people around them? The answer to that, I think, is that uh, it is not really conservative families moving into cities. That's not happening. What's happening is that young people are leaving rural areas and moving into cities. Now, young people are most uh, are best situated. Uh, or are the best demographic group to be liberal or to become liberal. So even a young person who was raised in a conservative family in the countryside moves into the city and is drawn towards liberalism. However, the good news is that as they tend to mature and grow and eventually start families, they move to suburbs. And suburbs are also demographically regarded as urban areas, but they're not really. Suburbs are very often far more culturally like the rural area than they are like the city area. In the neighborhood, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in in suburban areas, people do know their neighbors. Uh, they do have their own vehicles and are independent for transport. Very often they're pickup trucks or, or SUVs. Um, the, the mindset is much more of I'll take care of myself mindset. And that, I think, is, is largely where the hope lies because there's no question about it that, uh, that, that city people are liberal. There's, there is there's no doubt about it. Um, the concern about r rural areas shrinking in population and urban areas growing in population um, well, that's absolutely true. However, it also includes the suburban areas, as I said, the suburban areas surrounding cities. And I do think that one of the reasons that liberals and governmental agencies are so hostile to the suburbs um, is precisely because they know full well that the suburbs tend to be conservative. It's the city centers tend to be liberal. Now, again, a lot of people live within cities, dense populations, high-rise uh, and so the numbers are there, and they very often carry the city politically. However, uh, the suburban the the, uh, the the suburban areas do in fact tend to hang in there as as conservative. Uh, people that move from the city into the suburban area demographically are still called being urban, even though they are suburban, and uh, the political affiliations there are much more inclined to switch back. So that is just a, a little bit of a picture of, uh, of what's going on with the cities as we come to the end of this episode of the podcast. Uh, I ask you to please visit my website, and uh, that is at rabbidaniellappin.com. Right there, you're able to click on the Contact Us tab, which shoots me an email, uh, anything you want to tell me, anything you want to ask me, um, anything you want to talk about. I do want to hear from you, so I, I appreciate you heading over to at com, And that means we, we are at the end of uh, the uh, podcast episode for this week. And so with thanks to you 
for your participation. I, your rabbi, wish you a healthy and a prosperous coming week. God bless. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lapin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network.